Professor Daniel Gahan will introduce our next speaker. You only have to hear me talk really fast for a few more seconds. And Andrew's a terrific lecturer, so you're in for a real treat. And he speaks very slowly in this beautiful, you know, he speaks with the, the Queen's English, and it's very lovely. It's, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Andrew Davison, who I was colleagues with for a number of years until I went to the other place, or he's at the other place if you talk to Thomas Joseph White. Um, he is currently the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and the Natural Sciences in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. Before moving to theology, he was a scientist. He received undergraduate and doctorates in chemistry and biochemistry at Merton College at the University of Oxford. And then he shifted to theology and received undergraduate and doctoral degrees in theology from Corpus Christi College at the University of Cambridge. And he was also a visiting student here at the Angelicum at a certain point in time as well. He's taught Christian doctrine at Oxford and Cambridge before his current appointment as the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and the Natural Sciences. Such a fantastic title, his, his position. And he was junior chaplain at Merton College. He was recently made honorary canon philosophy at St. Albans Cathedral and um, is a priest in the, Anglican, in the Church of England. His work is on the interconnections of theology, science, and philosophy. And in 2016 to 17, he had a year away, which was unfortunate for me, but good for him. He was at Princeton at the um, Center for Theological Inquiry in a program that was sponsored by NASA, where he was looking at the way in which the impact of thinking about the discovery of life, um, exobiology, and extraterrestrial life. And he has a book that's coming out from Cambridge University Press in the spring called Participation in God and Exploration in Christian Doctrine and Metaphysics. And coming out in the next issue of Nova Vetera is a wonderful article he wrote, Bringing Together Divine Exemplars and Evolution from a Thomistic Perspective, that's coming out in Nova Vetera. So let's welcome Andrew with a warm applause. Thank you, Daniel. I'm grateful to Father Thomas Joseph for his invitation to take part in a symposium on this important topic with distinguished colleagues. And it's a great pleasure to be back after 15 years uh, since I was an ecumenical visitor here at the Angelicum. I plan to argue that the idea of form is vital for biology and therefore that the idea of soul and hylomorphism are of great value for thinking philosophically about life. And I'll then ask whether, however, we need to go quite as far as Aquinas does in differentiating the hylomorphism of human beings from the rest of biology. I'll present some provocations from the sciences for why I want to pursue that question, and I'll suggest that we can approach the human soul through what might be called an emergent hylomorphism. The natural overlap of hylomorphic and emergent thinking, I'll suggest, can help us both to think about the genuine novelty that can occur between one level of life and another, and to uphold a non-reductive account of agency centered on form. And finally, I'll look at how an emergentist hylomorphism might square well or less well with other aspects of Aquinas' thought. Now, as soon as I start to question Aquinas, I will proceed with a tentative step um, I have much to learn in general from the distinguished speakers in whose company I find myself today, but that is particularly true when it comes to Aquinas on the human soul. Departing from Thomas at all does not come naturally to me. 
And if I find anything that he has to say problematic, it may be because I've misunderstood him. Um, I would feel, however, very exposed in denying that the fundamental powers of reason happen as a result um, of uh, physical processes in the brain. But first, the larger biological perspective. We need something like the Aristotelian concept of soul, which is to say, of living form for science. Those of us in this room who already think in those terms shouldn't forget that biology has tried to proceed without a sense of form, of the whole, even of life. And the predicament, perhaps even parody of biology, that resulted in the 20th century is a salutary confirmation of the necessity of recognising form. The British philosopher Mary Midgley, who I noticed died last month, may God rest her soul, wrote about the spectacle of 20th century biology, biology, the science of living things, coming to define its object as something too small to be alive. Proteins, DNA, atoms, and so on. Francois Jacob, writing in 1973, gives us an example. He says, the processes that take place at the microscopic level in the molecules of living beings are completely indistinguishable from those investigated in inert systems by physics and chemistry. In fact, since the appearance of thermodynamics, the operational value of the concept of life has continually dwindled and its power of abstraction de uh, declined. Biologists no longer study life today. Those ideas were famously applied to human life and its categories in now famous words of Francis Crick in 1994. You, your sorrows and joys, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and your free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells with attendant molecules. Biology necessarily fails to focus on life when it takes the reductive turn from the organism to the parts, when it turns away from the form, as a Thomist would say. Indeed, I think it's useful to note that Aristotle and Aquinas help us to diagnose the very heart of reductionism as seeing the matter but failing to see the form. For an excellent survey of that historical move away from the whole to the parts, and a happier recent correction, I recommend a paper by Daniel Nicholson entitled The Return of the Organism as a Fundamental Explanatory Concept in Biology. I'll quote two passages that will give the sense of his diagnosis. So he writes, Although it may seem like a truism to assert that biology is the science that studies organisms, during the second half of the 20th century, the organism category disappeared from biological theory. Over the past decade, however, biology has, come, has begun to witness the return of the organism as a fundamental explanatory concept. And another quotation. The second half of the 20th century witnessed the disappearance of the organism as a fundamental explanatory concept. The epistemological focus shifted to sub-organismic sub, uh, entities like genes on the one hand and supra-organismic entities like populations on the other. The category connecting them, the organism as a whole, fell between the cracks of biological inquiry. 
If the tide is now turning back towards attention to holes and organisms, to forms and to living things, Nicholson sees three main reasons. The first is that the so-called modern synthesis, which brought to get together a Darwinian account of evolution with the burgeoning field of molecular genetics, has proved not to be able to provide a fully satisfactory account of evolution, and I'll come to that uh, later on. Then he lists um, the growing awareness of the limits of reductionism in molecular biology, and um, the use of mouse models is quite important here. It turns out the, the tiniest little change makes enormous changes to, um, say, immunology, that sort of thing. And finally, a renewed interest in the nature of life as a genuine scientific question. If we need to attend to the whole, a Thomist will say that we need to attend to the form, which in a living thing is called the soul. In his River Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins mocks the earlier tradition in these words. There is no spirit-driven life force, no throbbing, heaving, postulating, protoplasmic, mystic jelly. But whoever thought that, Christians who took a hylomorphic view of things offered a much more sophisticated account of what it means to be, at the same time, both material and alive. Noticing the rather obvious difference of living things from non-living doesn't mean postulating some additional component not present in inanimate things, in, in inanimate things, some vital spark, some um, protoplasmic mystic jelly. The hylomorphist has no need to say that there's some additional thing present in living matter, but absent in non-living things. Both cases present us with matter characterized by form, and the difference is in the form, not the matter. The difference is in how the matter is. The matter of living things is not different from other matter qua matter, but with form, we are in the territory of nature or essence what Aristotle describes as neither independent of matter nor can be defined in terms of matter only. I think it's a really magical phrase. We're talking about what is neither independent of matter nor can be defined in terms of matter only. The living body of a dog is simply different from the corpse of a dog. We don't need to postulate some intrinsically, something intrinsically separate from matter. The difference lies in what is neither independent of matter nor can be defined in terms of matter only. The difference is in the form. So, ideas of form and of living form are going to be integral to biology. And I want to point to something more than that, the way in which Aristotle homes in on movement. Life is a formal characteristic, not a material one. Focus only on matter and you will miss the life. Attend to form, and life becomes rather obvious. Indeed, I would say, life is the most striking thing about a living creature. Aristotle and his Abrahamic commentators go further, however, and here it gets interesting, pointing not only to life as a real, distinguishing, formal feature, but also to what characterises and distinguishes life, namely movement. To be a living thing is to be characterised by one's own internal principle of movement. The Latin word for the soul, anima, bears witness to that. To be alive is to have a form characterised by animation, or perhaps more accurately, by animating. 
I think we should recognise that scientific work over the past, say, 150 years allows us to recognise a wisdom in Aristotle's comment about movement that goes far beyond what he himself could have known. Life is characterised by metabolism, and metabolism, it turns out, is all about movement. Not for nothing do we talk about metabolic cycles, and this is not simply an empty metaphor. Physical movement of molecules and ions is integral to a good deal of metabolism. Signaling and energy production also depend on physical movement. The synthesis of molecules crucial to life often involves trafficking precursors and products back and forth physically, not even, in fact, only within cells and organisms, but, as we now appreciate, sometimes even movement between organisms in a mutualistic relationship, where metabolism becomes a shared process distributed across cells of two or more organisms of different species. And all of that, I think, underlines just how profoundly right Aristotle was to talk about life as the quality of organisms whose form is characterised by self-movement. Species evolve, of course, and the boundaries of a species at any particular time can be difficult to draw. But that doesn't invalidate the idea of specific substantial form for all it might pose challenges for a theologian to think through. Ideas of specific substantial form need not too quickly be consigned to the intellectual scrap heap on account of evolution, not least because the persistence of similarity in biology is in its own way remarkable. Augustine notes it in his literal commentary on Genesis, although it can hardly have struck him as surprising. Today, precisely given our understanding of evolution, we can look at the persistence of a phenotype down enormously long stretches of time and see that persistence may be as worthy of comment as change. That's important, of course, because being able to talk about a specific substantial form is central to much that is most important in ethics. And specific form is once again being much discussed in relation to metaphysics in general and in the metaphysics of biology, sometimes under the banner of a new Aristotelianism. To be able to speak responsibly about substantial form today, we do need to be able to speak of its potential for variation over evolutionary time, certainly. But we might also note, however, that notions of substantial form are actually well able to describe development over the period of an organism's life. That's to say, Aristotle, in writing about um, this idea of form, was pointing to something that was stable, but also to something that was open. For Aristotle, as for Aquinas, substantial form is a principle of definiteness that allows for an openness, a sense of development. Substantial form can act materially towards the reception, accumulation, and variation of accidental form. These may, be not, no, these may not be natural ways for many to speak today, but the fact that this element of change and development is so integral to Aristotle's thought ought not to be ignored. With the category of habit so important to him, he captured something profound about the process of development and the relation between nature and culture. Little, I think, is more profound in all of his writing than this sentence. Neither by nature nor contrary to nature do the virtues arise in us, 
Rather, we are adapted by nature to receive them and are made perfect by habit. Wonderful sense of the interweaving of a sort of stability that is by its constitution uh, open to development. For the sake of brevity, I will pass over the next part in summary, just to say that the collection of ways in which our understanding of evolution has expanded in recent decades, what's often called the extended evolutionary synthesis, is shot through with references to organisms acting and relating as wholes, that's to say, as forms. We might even say that the extended evolutionary synthesis, in all its fascinating variety, is a list of the remarkable features of evolution that come into view when one leaves behind endlessly reductive breaking down and starts instead observing holes and their relations. So I'll just pass over examples almost as a list. Niche construction, that organisms shape their environment as well as being shaped by them. The place of epigenetics and the way in which what happens to us as a whole creature uh, is part of what we can pass on. The relationship between evolution and developmental biology, again, it's all about the emergence of the whole. Phenotypic plasticity, the capacity for a genotype to be expressed in multiple phenotypes, the way in which the form of the organism seems to be underdetermined by its genes. Genetic assimilation and accommodation, I'll come on to that in a minute. The co-evolution of, of, of gene and culture. Symbiosis, this really important sense now of the way in which creatures are not uh, atomistic, they're not just, they don't stand on their own two feet, uh, and they're not, it's not just a story of competition. Again, this is a relation between organisms, not genes. Evolutionary convergence and the role of mathematical form. Nothing could be more hylomorphic than this. It shows us that certain formal features uh, can be multiply instantiated in lots of different material conditions. Absolute definition of a hylomorphic insight. In fact, sometimes the idea of a return to the organism is listed as one of the primary aspects of this fascinating extended evolutionary synthesis. My college in Cambridge, Corpus Christi, has an annual sermon preached on the first Tuesday of Easter term. It's called the Mere Commemoration, and it's been delivered each year since the 16th century. One of the three themes a preacher can choose is not fearing death other than Holy Scripture doth allow. When it falls to me to preach that particular sermon, as I expect one day it will, I think I will make the point that the sense of death as something to be feared, in a proper sense, is actually a reason for hope, almost today a kind of act of resistance. Against the background of a reductionist mindset, fearing death is heartening news. We can and should fear death because we really are alive. Unlike the logic of biology at its most reductive, concerned so much with that which is too small to be alive, we know in face of death that we are indeed alive, alive enough to die. So that's the praise of a, of a Thomist uh, Aristotelian sense of uh, form or soul in, in biology. Aquinas offers us, on the one hand, that hylomorphic account of life and therefore of the human being. But more particularly, with the human being, he sees the soul as something that is, in some sense, needing to be united to the body, rather than that which um, just simply is its form. 
My provocative contribution to the symposium is to ask whether we really need to go from the first way of being hylomorphic to the second when it comes to humans. Need we say, for instance, that the soul is related to the body not as a form to matter, but as a form to a subject, if I've got that language right? Although the human soul obviously possesses a dignity of the highest order, need we say that God acts outside the normal order of things in bringing it to be, whether we're talking about the long historical story of hominid evolution or in human gestation. Finally, to put it another way, might we not think with our mind as the form and emergent property of the brain, or more ultimately of the whole body, rather than the soul uh, in some sort of isolation from the body? It might be useful if I outline what seem to me some scientific provocations for thinking that way. And I realize that previous people have had things to say about this already. So evolution. Much that we associate with being human arrived on the historical scene only gradually. We don't, of course, have many detailed data points for human evolution, but it's clear that much that we glory in about human beings in their current state has been present for a long time and developed only gradually, including tool use, artistic sensibility, and likely a sense of the numinous, reverence towards the dead, and perhaps some indication of medical knowledge. So there are evolutionary questions. I'm not saying they can't be answered, but they demand to be uh, taken seriously. And the role of the body and brain in thought is another one. I agree with David Bentley Hart, as he puts it, that some ideas are so implausible that only the deranged or philosophers of mind and neuroscientists will entertain them. <laughs> I know that neuroscience can be foolishly reductive. All the same, we can't ignore the many now well-established advances in our understanding of the function of the brain notched up over the past century. We know that if parts of the brain are removed or become badly diseased, integral aspects of human function are lost. It's clear from those tragic situations and from that admittedly blunt but still useful instrument, the brain scan, that all sorts of higher function are associated with particular parts of the brain. The notion that thought or reason at its core is somehow undertaken by the soul simply in itself, in contradistinction to its role as the form of the body, is less and less easy to maintain. I simply couldn't say with Aquinas that, and I quote, the body has nothing whatsoever to do in the operation of the intellect. Um, a third angle for us to consider, developments in artificial intelligence. Clearly, we should be cautious about, what, about the wider claims, or even wilder claims, made by some of those working on artificial intelligence. But the capacities we are beginning to see in certain very complex networks can't be written off. So for instance, I've seen, I've seen it working, a neural network that can abstract the sense of Newton's laws of motion from the appearance of complex objects falling and knocking into things. I won't, however, uh, take this aspect further here. So here I am. I've come to the mothership of Thomism, <laughs> to which I think I can reasonably say that I have dedicated my life. And although I've praised Thomas in the first instance, for what he might contribute to a science of life. I've also felt compelled to raise, because I think he would want me to, some fairly serious scientific concerns about his approach to the human soul. 
In the final part, I want to be constructive and look at whether an expanded natural hylomorphism might not be able to do much of the necessary work in relation to the human soul. So I'm going to talk about what previously um, was rather distinguished from hylomorphism, namely emergence, and talk about how, for me, they, they can form a very productive um, interrelation. And there was an earlier point about the fact that this is a, this is a language that is, means many different things and is meant meant in different ways by other people. I think I take a different view from the, the previous suggestion, which is to say, if there's a body of language which is somewhat onto something, uh, but understood differently, I don't, it seems like a counsel of despair to say, well, we must let it go because it's been understood differently. For me, I would want to take it as a bridge into connecting what people see, which may only be a partial understanding of what we want to talk about, and build, build a bridge rather than let it go. So the term emergence was first coined uh, in the philosophical sense by George Henry Lewes in the 19th century as pointing to a novelty in wholes that is in excess of what it otherwise uh, is there in, the, in its parts. It flourished in the 19th century, not least in Britain, but then seemed to fall into a um, much um, less state in the 20th century, seemingly because developments in physics thought, uh, were thought to support a reductive approach to uh, wholes and parts. But discussion of emergence, uh, whilst it consequently waned, uh, has come back towards the end of the 20th century. Uh, it's become significant in part because of work on complex systems, self-organization, and behavior under conditions of non-equilibrium thermodynamics. Well, I have a paper more or less completed in which I try in more detail than I have time for today to argue that hylomorphism is not only the ideal framework, ideal framework within which to think about emergence, but that Aristotle and his commentators actually anticipated many of what are claimed as emergentist insights centuries, even millennia earlier. For the sake of brevity, I will speak, spell out the argument in outline as a series of brief proposals. And I see um, a close relation between hylomorphism and emergence. So, first of all, dynamism. Both emergence and hylomorphism are out to explain the dynamic process of how something comes to be and remains as it is. Aristotle put hylomorphism forward as an account to uh, address the nature of change. Both, I would say, are fundamentally non-dualistic but also non-reductive. They're both perspectives on how to oppose reductionism without being dualist. And then I'm going to start talking about some of the ways in which I think there's a really profitable uh, um, conversation to be had between them. If we adopt a sufficiently broad and therefore sufficiently Aristotelian definition of form and matter, we can see that it prefigures the proposal that physical reality reveals a layered structure of emergence. Atoms emerging from subatomic particles, molecules from atoms, larger biological structures from molecules, cells from these, and so on. If we, de if we define matter with absolute generality as that out of which something is formed, and form, again with absolute generality, as that which comes to be um, in and out of something else, then, and this is the vital point, what is formal at one level can be material in relation to what emerges um, from it at a higher level. So clay, for instance, is material in relation to bricks, but bricks are material in relation to dwellings, and dwellings are material in relation to cities. 
It strikes me that the language of form and matter here um, maps closely onto what we see there in emergence and provides a really terrific clarity for knowing what's going on. I want to take this one step further. In the previous comment, I, I worked upwards from successively higher forms emerging from the coordination of matter. But hylomorphism also allows us to conceive of this, I think, in the opposite direction, with form informing matter. Materiality is a capacity to be informed, and importantly, one form can inform another. And I think this accords closely with so-called downwards emerge, uh, emergence. So what we think of as emergence upwards is a kind of informing downwards. And for me, this, this avenue of thought, uh, we can jump off from the insight that form can act materially, that form can be informed, with the classic example, perhaps, of the passive intellect. But I also think of an analysis um, of the layering of language in Aquinas' commentary uh, on the peri-hermeneas uh, peri of Aristotle, which I think is a fascinating passage because, as far as I can see, in complete isolation in the middle of the 20th century, Michael Polanyi offered exactly the same analysis in emergent terms as Aquinas had done in hylomorphic ones, um, with no evidence of, um, of an interaction there. What if we stretch this to the transformation of the form of the parts by their information by the whole? A hylomorphic emergence, if we can think of such a thing, would not, I think, be dualist, because we don't have a form of the whole that's somehow passed on to a lower level as if to unchanged parts. The point is that the whole makes the matter to be changed and have these properties. Why is that important? Because the receptive character of form provides a way for us to think about an important and overlooked aspect of emergence, Namely that novelty is found not only in the new whole, but also in the transformation of the parts. Here, a hylomorphic interpretation can alert us to a frequent oversight in emergentist writings. The component parts are not only raw material, that from which something emerges. They are also affected by their combination into the new overarching form. So there's a kind of ambiguity in the way part is used. Part can be parts as they were or parts as they come to be. And this, is, this difference is often elided in the literature. We just have to think that, for instance, that atoms are profoundly affected by their incorporation into molecules. One could even go so far as to ask whether they're even there as atoms at all after their incorporation. And a neuron in a brain is just a very different sort of thing from a neuron sitting alone in a Petri dish. It does things in the, in the brain it would never do in a Petri dish because of its um, transformation by its um, in, interrelation with others. So lower level entities act materially, yes, in the upward sense of providing the material for that which emerges from them. But they also act materially in the sense that they receive from the overarching form, and because of that, are always at least somewhat changed in the process. And this, I think, helps us to see just how um, forcefully we can talk about a novelty and emergence that is not only the formation of new holes, but also the transformation of the component parts. Indeed, unless the parts are in some way affected by the whole, we don't really have a new whole at all. And Aristotle recognised this with his distinction between a truly new combination, a holon or whole, and a mere agglomeration, a soros or heap. Emergentist writers tend to be alive 
to Aristotle's maxim that the whole is more than the sum of its parts, or they, they sometimes think that they dreamt it up, up, whereas in fact he came up with it. But then they miss the equally Aristotelian point that the parts in the new whole are other than the parts as they were before. And from this, and I realize I've had to pass through it rather quickly, I think we can imagine a hylomorphic emergentism, an emergentist hylomorphism, which would help us to see nature as full of really of true novelty and to recognize that form has causal powers. So I don't see uh, mind as extrinsic. I see it as hylomorphic. Uh, the brain isn't affected by mind as if it was something different. Um, the mind is its form. There is potential there for helping us understand that emergence, to understand, uh, emer understand emergence of conscious, consciousness. I think we can say, or it's worth exploring on scientific and philosophical grounds, that the mind is, and I pick up that earlier definition of, of something like form, the mind is neither independent of the brain nor can be defined in terms of brain cells only. I think we should give an emergentist hylomorphism uh, a run for being able to say that the cells of my brain dance to the mind of, uh, the cells of my brain dance to the music of my mind rather than my mind dancing to the tune of the cells. So with genuine novelty as a possibility and an agency of form over and against its matter, I wonder whether we could uphold all or almost all of what Thomas so importantly taught about the human being, but by treating the soul as emergent, not something joined to a body. It's a larger question than I can pursue to anything like completion here, um, or ever, so I'll conclude simply by asking how that might fit or not fit with other aspects of Aquinas' vision. I think I've got about three things to say here. So a single substantial form. Aquinas held so firmly and so productively to the presence of a single substantial form in a human being. Now, of course, that's, not, that's to insist that there's nothing of the body not formed by a rational soul directly, and it doesn't follow that there's nothing of the soul that doesn't directly involve the body. But I do wonder whether the stress on unity in Thomas's view might blend from the former into the latter. And then something about the warmth of Aquinas towards mediation and secondary causation. Saying that God creates the rational soul outside of the natural process may be neither natural, necessary or helpful. Thomism so naturally avoids invoking the God of the gaps. So why here? It's not, is it not generally better and indeed more Thomist to see a God at work in the whole, not outside it? God is the cause behind all causes, the actor in all action. A natural emergent origin of the human soul would not in any way prevent it from being fully the action of God. And finally, a point which I think is difficult to put into words but um, could be important. Something about the mind being um, immaterial more or less by definition and how far we can run with that. Thomas taught that the mind is immaterial. In an important way, I think that is self-evident, almost tautologically true. We might look at the example in uh, Summa Philogie, uh, part one, question 75, article five. His first argument here is based, I think, simply on the definition of a form as a form. He says, if a form is the form of a material thing, then precisely as such, it cannot be itself material. That I accept, it's just hylomorphism. His second argument for the immaterial of mind is based, however, on its operation, that it can know something absolutely, as he puts it, one form entering into the mind as another. 
But my question here is whether we can't just have the second sense on the basis of the first. The mind is, by definition, a formal thing, and in that sense, immaterial, even if it is fully the emergent form of something material. Without having to be unlike any other living form, can't the soul be formal enough, simply as a form, to be immaterial in the ways Aquinas wants for the sake of its operation? It simply belongs to the mind as mind to think. I think that's almost true by definition. It belongs to the mind as mind to think, not to the brain. The brain has atoms and cells. The mind has ideas and arguments. Powers and properties belong to the form primarily and to the matter only in as much as it is the basis for instantiating the form. Powers and properties belong to the whole and not to the parts as parts. But I wonder whether any of that requires the sort of extra immateriality that Aquinas attributes to the human soul. I recognise in taking that line that a natural origin for the soul raises questions about the inherent immortality of the soul. I think one could respond that the soul is held in being after death, uh, whatever we say about its innate status, because God loves it. You'll have noticed that I prayed earlier for Mary Midgley's soul, and I really meant it. The flip side of this would be that Aquinas's admirable sense of the extreme unnaturalness of the disembodied soul before the general resurrection would be further underlined. And finally, thinking of uh, embryology, with an emergent count of the soul, we can sidestep debate about the creation and annihilation of successive grades of form or soul during human generation, gestation. The prohibition on killing anything that is human within its, his or her mother's womb would remain. So, one paragraph in conclusion. I've argued that the concept of hylomorphism applied to biology, in other words, the category of soul, is of great value. I've argued, however, that there are scientific difficulties to thinking of the human soul in the way that Aquinas does. And I think this is an ongoing project. It's going to involve people looking at specific cases and arguing them through. I hope I have at least sketched out my sense of how the natural conjunction between hylomorphism and emergence may allow what's necessary for approaching the human soul in more natural terms. It may allow us to respect both the radical novelty that arrives on the scene with the human being and the truth of human agency and freedom. Thank you. Introduce changes in the soul, 
uh, introduce changes in the mind, in the form, um, and that since those changes in the body don't imply a, cha- a, a loss of the state of humanness, neither would changes in the state of the soul imply, or, or in the state of the mind imply a, a loss of the state of humanness. Um, would you say that there's a, there's a direction in that argument there that you made? Well, I think the interesting question to ask is whether we can even say that there's a, a, a change in the way the matter is that isn't a change in the form. Um, and I may be somewhat exposed on this front um, if I'm saying that the form is the form of the thing that we have in front of us and, um, and what we, is in front of us is, is changed. I, I absolutely want to hold on to the idea that this, is, this remains absolutely a human being. Um, but I suppose that's partly there in, in certain earlier sort of embryonic discussions of the um, development of the human being in, um, in Thomas terms, where even if it was held earlier on that a, a rational soul hadn't arrived, it was still said, this is a thing of a certain kind. Um, but I think I probably need to talk it over with you um, in a bit more detail. Yeah. Now, I have a problem to say that, okay, the cells emerge, the tissue, the tissue emerge, and so forth, according to your diagram, atoms, molecules, organisms. Because that's all in the material order. Now, um, in the emergency, uh, emergency literature, there's quite a lot of criticism, which I will not summarize here, regarding how we have some material to emerge something immaterial, because there's a gap right there. And the same thing, you know, obviously, is referred to from the brain to the mind, let alone from the brain to the soul. Um, that's, that is a gap that actually, we could not, according to the current literature, could not really thoroughly, uh, logically explain. So that's, Basically, my question. Mm. Well, you see, I, that earlier point about the immateriality of form as form, I think, so take a frog. A frog is entirely a material thing, but the form of a frog is not a material thing. And so I don't think we need to get as far up as brain or, and mind to talk about a thing that, emer- that is in matter, that is an aspect of matter that isn't material. I think as soon as we're... I mean, the, the form of a water molecule is not itself a material thing. So it seems to me that this is a, a feature that we don't need to get anything like as far up as, as mine before we're encountering. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think the relationship between the brain and the rest of the body is a really important one when it comes to cognition because there is a, a danger that we replace a sort of mind-brain dualism with something like a sort of brain-body dualism and we forget about the ro role of the rest of the body in thought. Um, but nonetheless, you can distinguish between... Even if, even if a property is a property of the whole, you can distinguish between which parts of the whole are more important than others for that particular property. Um, but I it's such a complica complicated question, and, and I don't have the medical expertise, and it's so fraught with uh, highly important ethical consequences that I think just to speculate about it sitting standing here would, would probably be irresponsible. Um, what I will say is that this idea of a single substantial form is, I think, a, a, a terrific thing and something that um, you know, the Dominican tradition can be properly proud of, and I think we might hear more about it um, later on, not least because it, it bears witness to the role of the, the soul as the form of the whole body. And there are various ways in which the whole of the body enters into thought. Um, body cognition is one example, but... Um, I mean, I often, when I'm teaching this stuff, I often point students to Aquinas' um, discussion of the remedy or cure for sorrow or pain, in which he says, amongst other things, have a good cry, go for a long walk, or have a hot bath. And I think there's such a wisdom there and, and, a, and a witness to the, the whole person and the whole of the body and the role of the rest of the, of the body and not just some sort of... Dis, uh, concentration to say on just the brain that's incredibly important. I was talking to a student about this who was working on, um, on melancholy, depression in Reformation and Renaissance sermons. And, and she was absolutely flabbergasted by Aquinas on this. She said, if you look at the Reformation and Renaissance sermons, they, they have two diagnoses. Either you don't have enough faith or you're possessed by a demon. Um, whereas Thomas might say, actually, you just need to have a good cry, a hot, a hot bath, or a long walk. Um, and there's something rather beautiful, and I think wise, about that. We'll make this the last question of the session. I suppose this carries on a bit from that point, but um, I'm wondering if we speak to your worry about, uh, about the, the immateriality or the separateness, let's say, of the intellectual act um, from the body organ. But it seems to me that, that this would be a worry just if it were the case that Thomas's own account didn't already anticipate that, that physical things that happened to us would impede even so much to prevent intellectual activity properly said. But of course, Thomas says all of that. Um, so he said that if we are absolutely enraged, it's theoretically possible to reach a point at which intellectual cognition simply doesn't happen, mm -hmm. right? So that it would seem to me that the, without downplaying the interesting things about the last century of, of brain science, that he anticipated that in a way, say, Descartes didn't. Um, and that, uh, I think to me, if, if, we, if we return rather to say, yes, it's true, the, the operation of the intellectual act is, is separate, but the actual intellective cognition of an embodied human being in this world is always embodied. But I wonder whether that doesn't solve some of your worries, but not run the risk of the other sorts of problems that I think uh, Edward Bates was talking about earlier on the nature of universal cognition as, as, in case, as being the sort of thing that a, a struct dynamic structure of matter just isn't able to do. 
Right, so one thing I need to do, clearly, is sit down with the texts of the other people who are talking today and read them and, and go over them with, with the utmost care. And I think it is, it is really important, that point about how there is a physical basis for many things that feed into the highest operations of the, of the mind. Um, I, I'm just aware that I'm in an environment, uh, uh, the university, we all are, it, when um, to say that, that's why I use the word exposed, to say that um, there are simply functions of the brain, uh, some, sorry, functions of the mind that can't have a physical basis is, is a big deal to say it. If I have to say it, I'll say it. Just like I'm prepared to say there is no scientific basis for why there's something rather than nothing. I'll stick my neck out as far as my neck will go with that. But um, to say that there's simply features of the mind that can't be, uh, uh, can't be based upon the the functioning of the brain, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. And uh, if it's true, you know, then it points in marvelous direction. But um, I just want, I, I fear for this God of the gap situation or death by a thousand cuts, or just um, the, the, the church making itself implausible in a way that it doesn't need to. So um, let the truth lead which, in whichever direction the truth leads. I'd like to thank Professor Davidson for his helpful, honest, and extremely thoughtful provocations and reflections, and also for his uh, contribution to the future of the University of the T-shirt, Mothership of Thomism, ideas of how we can initiate that. I'm sure the sales will be yes. very profitable. Yes, yes, yes. Please thank you.